Beloved congregation of the Lord, as you know, I was a funeral director in my previous calling, and one of the things I would often be tasked to do was to perform funeral services in the buildings of Roman Catholic uh, churches. And if you've ever been uh, in those kinds of buildings, you know, very prominent in the architecture and in even the layout of their sanctuary is the crucifix. The crucifix. There in the view of everyone and impossible to, to miss it is a, a statue or a representation of Christ hanging upon the cross. And of course, uh, in the Reformed Church, we would uh, say that that is flatly idolatrous. It goes against the second commandment, which uh, forbids us making graven images, especially for the purposes of of worship. But it often occurred to me what what a deadening uh, impact this must have upon the people to look upon Christ in that way, hang upon the cross, day after day, year after year, set before them in that scene. Couldn't help but, but imagine that reducing Christ to that moment, as though he was forever hanging on the cross, forever for all to see and gaze and, and gawk at, must give a very distorted picture of who Christ is. Yes, we, we glory in the cross of Christ, this servant of the Lord who willingly went to the place of torment, curse, and death for his people. But apart from the truth of the resurrection, that this is the risen Lord, must it not reduce the cross to a mere idol, reducing Christ to one who is always in that place of weakness and, and helplessness, so, so pictured there, and ultimately reducing even the Savior himself to just a doll or a toy that we drag out and parade before the eyes of the people to gain some comfort from, some, some assurance from, but, but truly not to know him as he is. And I think that the picture that we have here in the book of Revelation, the picture that was revealed unto the Apostle John as he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos for his faithful ministry and witness, surely is an antidote to that. He looks up, as he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, it says. And, and there he sees the one who calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. Clothed in the glorious garments of a high priest. His, his voice as the sound of many waters. His face as bright as the sun. His eyes as flaming fire. His hair white with the wisdom in the old age of eternity. His feet as hard bronze, refined by fire, demonstrating his dominion and rule over the nations, which will grind all his enemies into powder. 
out of his mouth emerging that sharp two-edged sword of his word. So many spiritual and symbolic images set forth for us to picture who and what Christ is today in his glorified, risen state. To truly see the true Christ, not an idol of our own imaginings, as one that we can control and, and dictate to, but to, to really encounter Christ in his glory. That's what makes all the difference. For this man, this Apostle John, he fell down as one dead. Must that not be the case for everyone who has an encounter with Christ? They must truly come to see that they are nothing and that he, he is everything. For who are we in ourselves? And who are we really to ask anything of him? One who is so glorious as this. But notice the tenderness and the grace and the love with which he speaks to his servant, the Apostle John, laying his right hand upon him. He says in verse 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Well, today on this very special Lord's Day service, when we especially in our churches consider the resurrection of Christ, I'd like to take both services to unpack the, the truths that we see in this verse and be guided uh, according to the applications and doctrines that we uh, read in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17. And this morning... I hope uh, to speak about the, the risen Christ, the risen Christ, and to gather two doctrines from this text for our consideration. The first is the risen Christ has overcome death, and the second, the risen Christ is our justification. Well, you know that this... Um, this holiday which we celebrate, Easter Sunday, it is, of course, a human tradition. You won't find in the pages of, of Scripture something that necessitates or commands that we dedicate one Lord's Day out of the year to considering the resurrection of Christ. But what you do find is that, indeed, the whole day is set apart for him every day of, every week of the year, I should say, on the first day, as a commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. In verse 10, we read about, as I say, the apostle saying that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the Lord's day. Why did this day belong to the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that the Lord's Supper belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, well, because it was on the first day of the week, according to all the gospel writers, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so, also according to examples that we see in the book of Acts and in the epistles, the church from its earliest inception, the New Testament era, set apart the first day 
to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And indeed, it's, it's fitting that we reflect upon it also on this time of year. And notice how this is also the truth that Jesus Christ especially speaks as a word of comfort and encouragement to his servant before he, he unveils all the glorious mysteries of this book of Revelation. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus has overcome death. This is also what uh, the catechism, uh, which we read, began with. By his resurrection, he has overcome death. It's held forth here. Jesus is the mighty conqueror who has overpowered this great enemy of humanity, the enemy of death. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And for that to be true, of course, it must be true that the very same Christ who died also rose. It's important that we understand this, that Christ, even in the glorious picture that he has is, he is set forth here, is, is not some other uh, entity than the very Christ who was born in, the, in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, the very Christ who ministered and, and preached and revealed the gospel in the days of his earthly ministry. It is the very same Christ, indeed, who, who we read about in the gospel writers who also died. And children, that might be hard to believe that someone who's as glorious as the person that we've read about here could be the same Jesus of whom we read. But do you remember uh, that story from the gospel according to Luke in, uh, in Luke 25? There on the, the very first Lord's Day, the, the very first Easter Sunday, we could say, Jesus had risen from the dead and his 11 disciples were gathered together in, in a room by themselves to comfort and to encourage one another. And, and what is it that happened? There was Jesus in the midst of them saying, peace be unto you. Amazing. All the doors locked. There they are in the room. And there is Jesus. Amazing powers had been given to the Savior. He was able to instantly be in a place where he previously had not been. Some great reward had been bestowed upon him from God that he could now do this in his human nature. Just come into this room, even through the doors and everything. And so the temptation might be to say, well, is is this a ghost? Is this uh, some kind of non-human entity that is before us? Has Jesus ceased to be true man? But what did Jesus do? You you remember, don't you? He he told them to look at the holes in, in his hands and in his side. He invited them to touch him. And 
If that was enough, he even took food and he ate it in their presence. It says that he, he took some of the, of the cooked fish, he took some honeycomb, and he ate it. He actually ate the food physically. He's, he's the same Jesus as before, the very one who bears the wounds of his death and suffering, the very one who, who was the true man from his conception. He is still the same Jesus. And... These are astonishing things, and, and of course the world would scoff at, at the belief in the risen Christ. For those who do not fear God, nor believe his word, they, they see this as just another tale that was devised by those disciples. But I've always thought that surely even those who are so wicked in their imaginations as to scoff at the very word of God, must there not be something deep within that testifies against them? Does not everything of the gospel history have that curve of reality about it, that ring of truth? If these disciples wanted to elevate themselves in the eyes of the world with some great uh, hoax or, or something like that, why did they make themselves to be look out such fools and cowards? Why did it have to be delivered to them first by women who were there on that first Easter morning? Why were they not out there waiting for him? Why is it, did they disbelieve even to the point of his appearing before them? Well, it, it all goes to show that these indeed were men of weak faith. Their very sins are highlighted in the accounts that they give. These, these are not... The, the testimonies of people who are dishonest, but they're dishonest even to their own hurt and shame. But indeed, even if there would be those who would deny the witnesses of men, can you deny in your conscience the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, Jesus who is here in his power and spirit and divinity? He speaks to you and me by his word today, I am he that liveth. And was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus, He is the faithful witness, the perfect witness. And He speaks to us today with all authority, testifying of this reality. He is the one who died. He remembers it intimately, perfectly, exquisitely. What it was like there to hang upon that cross, to gaze upon those scoffers and those haters of him before him. He knows what it is like to feel forsaken of God. He knows what it's like to have the vials of God's wrath poured out upon him. He knows what it's like to bear the sins of each one of his people. And he knows what it's like Surrender his, his spirit and soul into the hands of his Father to give up the ghost and have all things accomplished in his death. He was there. This is Christ. And so he's able to say, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. The same Christ who both died is now alive. He lives. His soul was transposed back into his body. 
And so this one who, who is both true God and true man, he has, he has his whole humanity entire and complete as before. Only now he has an unperishable life. He can never die again. That's why he says, I am alive forevermore, never to die again. The risen Christ in great glory and authority and power. He speaks to each one of us today, knowing our spiritual condition, knowing those who have a personal relationship with him, those who look unto him as their Savior and Lord, and those who are still in the midst of death. His burning eyes of fire, they look through us as a mere open book. He addresses us personally and individually. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That word amen doesn't testify of the absolute truth that is held forth here. The authoritative truth, that which is to be believed and trusted in. It's that which is to be have us build our lives upon it. The infallible testimony of the risen Christ concerning who he is and what he has done. And especially in his overcoming death. But we have this truth that Jesus overcame death. I wonder if we could begin to see the implications of this. What is it that we are to gather from the truth that Jesus has overcome death? I'm reminded of, of one occasion there was a panel discussion on British television and a, a number of journalists and intellectuals, they were asked, what do you think is the most dangerous idea? What is the most dangerous idea that's out there? I don't remember what the other uh, panelists said. Maybe they said, well, the most dangerous idea is racism, hatred of people about their race, or maybe the most dangerous idea is communism or totalitarianism or or whatever it may be. And, and then a man sort of uh, looked out at the crowd and said, well, I say that the most dangerous idea is that Jesus is the Son of God and has risen from the dead. And well, a lot of people sort of rolled their eyes and scoffed at that. And, and the, the person leading the discussion said, well, you know, I, I can't just leave it there. What, why is it that you think that that is so dangerous? Well, he said, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, it authenticates everything that he said about himself. And in that, that he is true God. And if there is a God, then there is justice in the world, and there is hope and deliverance. And that is dangerous because men rebel against him. Because if they were to take that seriously, if they were truly to reckon with the empty tomb, then they would be confronted that they are living in a world in rebellion against this Christ, this Son of God. Well, indeed, I think that Christian spoke truly. For indeed, the, the testimony of Scriptures is that we are to look at the, at the resurrection of Christ as an infallible proof of Christ's deity. Even here, it, it's really his deity that, that shines forth, doesn't it? In verse 18 of Revelation 1, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The real 
ring of that, the force of that is that surely his uh, resurrection from the dead is, is not only proof of his true humanity, but of his deity as well. As true God, he has life in himself. And so he is, he is able to, to overcome the power of the grave and of death. Indeed, he spoke, did he not, in uh, the book of uh, John, in chapter 10 and verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So likewise, in the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 4, where it says of this Christ, he was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Indeed, it's the proof that he is the Son of God. This is declared and testified to in his resurrection. And you might might wonder, well, even in those two verses you read, Pastor, on the one hand, it, it seems to ascribe this resurrection to the Father and then to the Son in another place and then to the Holy Spirit in a third case. Well, you do not see that this is all, again, confirmation of his deity. Yes, it's God the Father who rose the Son, but he rose the Son of God by means of the Son of God. And the Son of God indeed always works through the Holy Spirit. One true God, three persons also in the work of our salvation. And so this Christ who is the Son of God, he has all power over death, all power over the grave. It's as though this uh, power of death, it is a great enemy. And it comes upon Christ, it falls upon him, and yet Christ is too strong for it. And set forth uh, likewise this truth in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, in the preaching of the apostle Peter, where it says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, Peter says to the Jewish crowd, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It was not possible. It was not possible, he said, that, it, he, that this one, the Lord's servant, Jesus Christ, should be held by death. And why was that so? Because the perfect obedience of Christ his perfect fulfillment of the requirements of God's law were such that God could not deny Christ this reward. And so in the resurrection of Christ, do we not have the testimony of God himself point towards his son and testifying to all men, look at my faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your reward. It's this, the righteous servant of God in his perfect obedience that is testified to in his resurrection from the grave. One who was perfectly righteous could and, 
and surrendering his life willingly and voluntarily could not remain under its power. And the third sense under that thought is not only his deity and his obedience that set forth here, but also his power, his power. And really, in, in verse 18 of Revelation 1, this really comes out as, as what we're to see all the other things as pointing towards. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So this one before whom John fell as, as one dead, this one who rests his arm upon his shoulder and testifies that he has risen. He also testifies of this, that he is the keys of hell and death. And of course, as we've sometimes illustrated before, if, if you have the keys to this building, what does that, that mean? Well, you have the authority to open and shut the door, to let people in and out. And so in Christ's words here and, and in the, the fact that he has this power by virtue of having risen from the dead, he is saying that he is the one who has been appointed to both cast people into the state of death and hell as well as to redeem them out of it. It's a sobering thing to contemplate, isn't it? That all the reprobate and all those who die the death of damnation do so under the judgment of Christ. All those cast into eternal hellfire, they do so at the hands of Christ. It is he who has the keys of death and hell to cast his enemies there in just judgment for their rebellion and hatred of himself and of his father. But likewise, the one who has power to cast into death and hell also has the power to save souls out of it. And is that not ultimately the utter difference between a man-centered faith and a man-invented faith and the true faith of the Son of God? Christ is no statue on a wall. Christ is no toy in which you can parade about. No, he is a living Savior. And each one of us are but sinners who are at his mercy. He has the power of hell and of death both to cast in and to take from. It's likewise, as he said, or rather as his word says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 9, for to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. And so with, with this, I'd like to transition to our second thought for this morning, but we'll consider, continue uh, this in, in other respects in the afternoon. But for now, let's, let's consider how Christ having these keys of hell and of death, they point out uh, this reality that the risen Christ is our justification. Our justification. Certainly included in this power of the keys, this power of over death and of hell, it includes that of justification. And this is 
likewise testified to in our catechism. It says uh, here, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he purchased for us by his death. So you could imagine, dear Christian, there is Christ standing before you. He says, I am he that lives and who died and who lives forevermore. I have the keys of death and of hell. And I pronounce you freed from the power of death and hell. What is it that you would expect to happen? Would you not expect hell and death to shriek in utter rage? Would they not say, if they could speak, that this soul whom Christ would redeem from us, do we not have a just claim to him? Has he not broken the commandments of God? Has he not been one who has transgressed the holiness of heaven? Is he not a damned soul? Did not the father of death, Adam, receive that word from heaven? In the day that thou eatest of it, the day that thou eatest of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. It's not the wages of sin, death. And that not only physical death, the separation of body from soul and the, the decay and the, and the pain of, of our bodies, but is it not also an incessant separation from God? And that for eternity. Is that not what the sinner deserves? And certainly, uh, if, if death and hell cannot speak in that way, then certainly the accuser, Satan, will try to pronounce that he has this claim over the child of God. He will try to say, surely you cannot, Christ, take this one out of my grip. He has sinned too long and too heinously to be saved. And yet Christ has these keys. And foremost there is the power to give righteousness. A righteousness that not only covers over all the defects and sins and blemishes in the child of God, but also fulfills all righteousness. That which causes God to regard the his children as perfectly righteous. This indeed is something closely connected to the resurrection of Christ. And for the proof of that, will you turn with me in the book of, uh, of Romans, chapter 4, which uh, you may remember the, the whole chapter is really a, an explanation or an exposition of those words from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. So it's the explanation of, of this that this whole chapter concerns. And if you go to the end of the chapter, you have uh, this very remarkable um, doctrinal teaching from the Apostle Paul, beginning at verse 22. And therefore it was imputed or counted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. 
if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Here we get to the very heart of what it is to be justified. It does not speak of any change in the person, but rather the legal standing of a sinner, whereby God, of his free grace, pronounces the sinner just, righteous. And that he does to those who have faith. But how is it? How is it that a just God could so regard the believer? How is it that death and hell and the devil himself would surrender their claims over the sinner merely for, for these reasons? How is it that they could atone? For, how is it that faith itself could atone for such things as breaking the holy commandments of God? Well, of course, it's not faith itself that, that atones for anything. Faith in itself is like any other act of the human will and heart. It is imperfect and tainted with sin. Considered in itself, it would add to our condemnation. But what is it that we see here? The thing that makes a difference is the person and the work of Christ, and in particular, his resurrection. It says of Christ there in verse 25, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. And there you see the, the close connection with those two things. Being delivered, according as, as Peter had said, as we read earlier, according to the determinate foreknowledge and counsel of God, delivered over into wicked hands like Pontius Pilate, like the Jews, like those Roman soldiers, nailed to the cross, made a curse for humanity. But not only in that cross work of Christ, not only in his death, not only that for our justification, but in his being raised as well, it says. He was raised again for our justification. And so the question might be, well, did not Jesus say on the cross, it is finished? Why is it that this, uh, this too would be needful? Not only his death as he gives up the ghost, but also his rising again. Well, it's, it's just there, as, as we've said, in his resurrection, that Christ was being testified to among men as the one who was faithful, as the one who had accomplished all righteousness in his own person. Apart from that declaration of Christ as righteous, and that justly and strictly according to the standards of God's perfect holiness, that we could be regarded as righteous in him. It's not an arbitrary thing that the sinner is declared righteous, but because we are attached to him by faith and being joined to him by faith, we receive his righteousness. This is... Likewise, uh, testified to in the chapter which we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are dead in your sins. That was 
what the apostle was contending for in that chapter, the truth of the resurrection of Christ, pointing out that if that were not true, then everything else fails, everything else falls. You are still under the wrath of God, but for this, Christ has risen from the dead. Is it any wonder that in the darkest seasons of the church, under the fiercest affliction and sorrow, the people of God would encourage each other with those words, He is risen. He is risen indeed. In His resurrection from the grave, we have that sure testimony that His sacrifice is received of God and we are righteous in Him by faith. But I think there's also this further reason why uh, his uh, resurrection was so necessary for our justification. And that is, that the very one who purchased this righteousness must also be the one who applies it. If you would uh, consider a chapter that we've uh, considered recently, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, uh, concludes in the final portion with verse uh, 11 with these remarkable words. He shall see the travail of his soul, speaking of Christ, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And there you have so much joined together in that short verse. Yes, it's Christ who bears the iniquities of his people. Christ, who's the righteous substitute in his death but likewise he is the one who justifies by his knowledge the same one who both suffered and died as he rises from the grave unto an imperishable life to live and to live forevermore he is able to apply his righteousness by giving birth to that spiritual knowledge of true faith in the hearts of each one of his people and don't you recognize this to be so? Were it only that you had a crucified Savior, the sort of Savior that you could picture on the wall of a church, forever there on the cross, forever dead, forever sacrificed, that would not be enough. Were it possible for Christ to atone for our sins upon the cross, we would not see any value in it. Our hearts would rebel against it. We would sooner perish in our sins and have the least regard for the Lord's suffering servant. He would not have his soul satisfied if that was all he had done. No, he must also come to each one of his children, revealing both his father and his precious cross work unto the soul's of his people. He must speak unto the soul and says, it is I, he who died and who lives and who lives forevermore. Amen. Believe upon me, sinner. And through that mighty work of his spirit, give birth to that spiritual knowledge whereby we cleave unto him as our righteousness and our salvation. We need, congregation, a complete savior. We need a living Christ. There's not a one of us who would partake of this righteousness which he purchased. What a glorious Christ is pictured here. As we consider to continue to consider these things uh, this afternoon, I hope that what has already been spoken will be for our reflection this whole day long. 
that apart from Christ's resurrection, apart from the righteousness which he bestows by means of that resurrection, each one of us would be damned. But with this Christ, there is salvation. Believe upon him, sinner. Trust in him. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.